We're continuing now in part two of our series called The New Normal. And the idea is, you know, a lot of times we think, especially in our current conditions right now, like we circumstances are always changing. We've got to figure out how to live in these new circumstances. And we got to wait for the outside forces to settle before we can really figure out how our life's going to be truly impacted. But what we're looking at in this series is a passage of scripture out of the book of Colossians, this amazing letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that was really kind of telling them the opposite. You don't have to wait on outside circumstances to settle to figure out how to live consistently. The consistency to live with good character, with a passion for Christ, with a passion for other people comes from internal stability, not external stability. And he spent the first couple of chapters uh, talking to them about where this wisdom comes from, what their new life and new purpose is going to be about. And now in chapter three, he's really laying out a brand new identity and, and how to walk forward in that. And last week we talked about compassion and how to have a heart of compassion and what that plays out in our life of how we allow compassion to flow freely through us. And if you haven't listened to that, I encourage you to, to go back and find that online and uh, connect and listen to that because these kind of build on each other. This uh, this series, these, these six issues, these six topics that we're going to talk about that Paul lays out all kind of work together. You don't, we don't just pick and choose them like many other lists in the Bible. We don't get to say, okay, I like that beatitude or I like that commandment, but not the others. We take them as a whole. And that's exactly the same in this Colossians 3 passage. And today we're going to talk about the second new normal aspect that should be in our life on a regular basis. And you think about your life for a minute, right? You think back to, maybe if you're an adult now, think back to when you were a child. And what seemed so normal to you and the behaviors that were normal to you and that you got away with maybe were just they've certainly shifted over the years. Think back to when you were in high school, the clothes you wore and what you spent your time doing has shifted and changed to where you are now. Even college or maybe when you first started working at a job and you had no clue what was going on and now you've been there for a while and you understand how things work and that you seem like you're in the normal now. But the truth is somebody could be brand new at work tomorrow and they're, even though the circumstance hasn't changed for you. It feels new to them. Or maybe they're starting school this year or just entering understanding elementary school and how friendships work and all that stuff. So it's, again, not the circumstance. It's so much that are defining how we walk in, but who we are on the inside. And this one today that we're going to talk about out of Colossians 3, this key aspect of our life, I think is when we understand it in the right way, is it could be a very big turning point for who we are, how we treat other people, how we engage in difficult situations, which I think we're all dealing with right now, right? We're all sometimes having conversations that we thought, you know, why does this seem so contentious? Why does everybody seem on one side or the other? And I think it's because many of us are missing this key element that we're going to talk about today. So let me reread Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Uh, to us, and uh, you'll hear the word in there, and then we'll jump out and take it from there. And this is Colossians 3, 12 through 14, and it says this, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, 
And in, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so the concept we're going to talk about today, we compassionate hearts last week, the second one that's listed, is kindness. Kindness. And I don't know about you, but if you look at our culture and our world right now, I think kindness is one of the true things that's missing in many people's hearts and minds and attitudes and interactions right now. And so again, that the process we'll walk through today is we're going to define this word. We'll then look at a model of Jesus, of how Jesus displayed this word and this concept. And then we'll talk about a way to apply it to our lives. How do we actually begin to think about it? But then how do we actually implement it to where it changes our behavior? It just doesn't become educational information, information, but it actually becomes application and implementation in who we are. So let's define kindness. Because I think a lot of us, when we hear that word, we go, oh, I know what that is. It's just being nice to somebody, right? Like somebody does something nice for me, do something nice for them. Or even if I see somebody in need, just kind of helping them out, showing them a little kindness, pulling some money out of my pocket, give it to them you know, help somebody up when they fall down. That's being kind. You know, we, we've, we've been told from an early age, be kind to, to one another, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we, we try to think that we're that way, but the word kindness here is much deeper than that. It's a, again, if you, if you maybe were going to pick up six words, you said, Hey, we have to live by these six words to be these followers of Christ of showing the gospel to the world. How to, maybe kindness wouldn't have made your list. You're like, oh, this is just normal. Help somebody out. Don't be, you know, an idiot. Don't be uh, bad to somebody. Just be nice. Kindness is niceness, right? And it's much more than that. So let's define it. And when we look at the word kindness, when you look at the original word that Paul uses here, it really comes out to two meanings. And the, the first meaning is the word benevolent. That means that you are benevolent to someone. And that word benevolent, again, we think benevolence is like, okay, somebody comes to the church and needs money to pay their rent, so we give them rent money. Or they need a coat, and so we give them a coat for the winter. Or they need food, and so we go buy them food or give them money for food. And that's benevolence. Many churches have benevolent ministries where people can come to get help. And that's certainly part of what the word benevolence means, but there's there's a couple of aspects that I think sometimes get missed in that, and it's is this benevolence also means useful, is that you are useful to someone, that the help you give, that the that the things you do for somebody are useful and of good quality. So benevolence means that you give something somebody that is useful and of good quality. Many of you know every year we do a coat drive. Uh, in some disadvantaged areas of our neighborhood. And as we do that, we'll collect coats from people in our neighborhood, people from really all around the country sometimes send us coats. And it's funny, every year we go through and sort through these coats and start to put them together by sizes. And we get some great coats. Some people go out and buy some brand new coats and donate those. And then we'll get some slightly used coats, maybe have some worn areas to them. And then I think sometimes we just get some stuff people are ready to throw out and say, hey, you know, I'll give it to somebody because I'm. it's not useful to me anymore. What's truly benevolent there? It's not the one that it's not useful to me anymore, so I'm just going to throw it out. True benevolence is something that is useful and of good quality. It's that brand new coat, that thing that 
that is that I would want as much as what I'm giving to somebody else. And so kindness here, this benevolence is not leftovers is what it's saying, right? It's not the leftover of what we have. It's not something that I don't want anymore, feelings I'm not really concerned about anymore, issues that I, I just won't bring up anymore. Benevolence is when we are actually bringing usefulness and things of good quality to situation. And I'm not talking about just physical things, right? I'm talking about emotional, spiritual, relational, like we're not bringing our leftovers to relationships. We're not bringing our, our, our leftover and unuseful things to certain conversations. We're engaging fully mentally, spiritually connected here. So the first idea of kindness is that it is benevolent, something that's useful and of good quality. But the second way that this word is used, the, the Greek word here that's used for uh, kindness is actually a used to use, it's a word used to describe aged wine, wine that has kind of lost its harshness. It's easy to drink. The alcohol content's come down. The bitterness has gone away. It the best way maybe we describe it is like table wine, right? Where it's just easy to drink. It, it's not harsh. You know, doesn't have maybe this incredible depth of flavor. Doesn't hit you hard in the face. It's just a very easy drink. It, it was a, a word again that was used for mild or easy. Smooth is another way to say it. When we when we take pity as something, you know, or we think of kindness as like, let me just come in and, and deal with this one thing, but it's actually coming in and dealing, being bringing smoothness and ease into a situation where when we walk into a situation, we don't add fuel to the fire. We're not throwing you know, gas on a on a log, a, a fire that's burning, and just create more chaos. We're actually cooling things down. We're bringing ease into a relationship. And so kindness is this. If I was going to define it, here's how I would define it. Kindness is a useful and meaningful res response that brings ease and comfort to physical, emotional, and relational situations. Hear that again. Kindness is a useful and meaningful response that brings ease and comfort to physical, emotional, and relational situations. I wish I was doing that more. I wish sometimes people in my life did that more. I wish our culture and our society was doing that more right now. It seems like we're almost doing the opposite right now, right? We get into a conversation with somebody and we have a differing opinion, a different viewpoint on whether it's you know, tensions that are going on brought on by racial injustice or the pandemic that's going on or governmental rules that we agree with or the election that's coming up. And we get in these differing things. And instead of bringing kindness, useful and meaningful dialogue that brings ease and comfort into those relational connections, we do the exact opposite. We throw fuel on the fire. We start pointing out why you're different and where you're wrong instead of bringing up meaningful conversation all we do is debate and we throw arguments at each other and neither of us take them in and we do it in person, we do it online, we do it uh, about other people when they're not even around and we create this divisive, uh, divided situation. And you've probably got some of those relationships in your life right now and you look at it, maybe your marriage feels that way. Maybe with you and your kids feel that way or maybe you've got that way in a, a friendship right now where it's divided and divisive 
And it's because there's a lack of kindness actually being shown there. Not just that you would go do something good for somebody, but you would actually bring something useful and a meaningful response into the situation that brings ease and comfort. That's what we need to do. So how do we do that? Let's look at a model of Jesus. There's a chapter in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, that takes Jesus on this journey of three times he is questioned and confronted about something. And now the, these men that were confronting Jesus did not really come to him for wisdom. They weren't coming to get their true questions answered. They were actually trying to do the opposite of kindness here. They were trying to create conflict. They were trying to create issues and division within Jesus's followers and create some ammunition to use against him. And Matthew 22 is like the rapid fire time of this. It's like one after the other. And I love what Jesus does here. Jesus, he's bold. He doesn't back down. But the way he responds is a beautiful picture of kindness, where he brings his useful and meaningful response in a way that brings ease and comfort into the situation. So let's look at these. And I think there's three words we can jump onto here, three examples of how Jesus responds that will can kind of be the fuel of our heart that grows kindness as well. And I'm not gonna, there's a, there's a ton here, so I'm gonna kind of tell you some of the stories and we'll focus in on one passage. But in Matthew 22, uh, the first time Jesus is confronted, it's this group of Pharisees that come to him and ask him about paying taxes, right? I mean, like they basically say, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, why are they doing this? They're trying to trap him because there was a group of Jewish people who said, we shouldn't support anybody but the Jewish uh, culture. And so we shouldn't pay Rome their taxes. But Rome was in control of Jerusalem at the time. And so they were requiring them to pay taxes. And so if Jesus said, don't go pay your taxes, they could have gotten him, the, the Roman government to come after Jesus. They were basically trying to create a trap where at the end of this, somebody would not like Jesus and they could use that against him. And so they basically said, you know, what do you say, Jesus? Should we pay taxes to Caesar, to the Roman government? And I love what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two eighteen. here. He just simply says, why do you put me to the test? Why do you put me to the test? And basically what Jesus is saying is, why are you trying to stir up trouble? What are, what are you doing this for? Why are you trying to be divisive and, and dividing people? Why are you plotting and planning? What What's the real win? Like, what's the harm that you're really feeling like you're having to overcome? And I love what Jesus does here. The first thing he brings in, the way he shows kindness here, is he brings calm, calm into the situation. He calls them out, but he doesn't do it in a way that, you know, starts reacting in, to them in the same way. Instead, he brings calm into the situation. That's how he shows kindness. He's like, why, why do you put me to the test? What's going on? Why, why, again, are you stirring up this trouble? And I think a lot of us could show kindness to other people is even when we're attacked, even when we are plotted against, even when it seems like people are working against us or we just already have a differing point of view and a divisive point of view from somebody else and they're not bringing calm, we, we just bring calm into the relationship. Maybe you do this with a spouse, again, or a child. When, when things flare up, the first tool you use is calmness. Like, like hey, why are, why are we really fighting? What's the true issue here? What's going through your mind right now so that I can better understand you? And that's what calm does. 
And, and there's what Jesus says. He's like, hey, show, show me a coin that we pay our taxes with. And he looked at it and said, whose picture's on there? And Caesar's picture was on there. And he's like, hey, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what God, what is God's. What a, what a great answer. Simple, calm. He didn't escalate or attack. Instead, he brought truth, something meaningful, which is the benevolence. And he brought calm, which is the ease, right? And the calm part, he, he brought this beautiful model of kindness. And it says afterward that they marveled at what Jesus did. Some of them probably weren't marveled in a good way of like, oh my gosh, I'm going to become a follower of yours now. But they marveled because they probably had not been in situations like that before where they've been trying to stir up trouble and somebody just brings calm. And I'm going to tell you, I've been done it before. I've seen it done to me when maybe I've lost my cool and, and somebody brings calm into the relationship. And when that happens... And you see bringing the temperature down, bringing the dialogue down, bringing the hatred and angst down, trying to bring calm there. What it does to a relationship, I marvel at. It really does create marvelous things that we can start to move forward on instead of constantly being negative about. But then there's a second question that comes up almost immediately. It says that, after they saw this question, they another group comes in and they're like the you know second string and they're like, they're, we're going to hit them again. Like, boom, boom, tag team. Here they come. And this one's kind of crazy because the question they ask him is like, all right, let's say that this lady is married and her husband dies. And by Jewish custom and culture, one of her brothers uh, is asked to take her on as his wife to take care of her, basically. And so they, they lay all this out before Jesus and they say, well, what happens then if, you know, the first guy dies and then the brother takes her and then, then the second brother dies and then, so the third brother takes her. And they, they said, this goes on seven times. Finally, the last brother, I guess, outlives them all. And then when they ultimately all die, the question was that they were asking Jesus was this, in heaven, in the resurrection, whose husband will she be? And... I love Jesus's response here too. And the way that he answers is because in Matthew 22, 29, he answers them this way. And he says, you're even wrong to even ask this question because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And what Jesus is saying here is look, your example is confusing and unrealistic. You're creating problems when we don't have to. You're creating confusion. You're you're taking the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst case scenario and acting like it's the normal. And you're creating confusing confusion and division that way. And Jesus, instead of getting into this meaningless debate, brought the second thing where he brought calm first. The second thing he does here is he brings clarity. He's like, you're trying to create confusion. I'm going to bring clarity. And he showed them kindness in doing this. He's like, you're more about what happens after you die. Instead, worry more about how you're living right now. And we do this in relationships all the time, right? We'll put expectations on somebody based on worst case scenario. And maybe it's, it's based on past behavior from that person. Sometimes people mess up and we look forward and we think the only outcome for them again is to mess up again. So if they did it then, they're going to do it in the future. Or if they like this 
person or they have take this side of the issue, that means that they are like this person who's the worst case scenario of that issue, who's the worst representation of that issue. And so we equate and we we actually create confusion because we'll call somebody something or, or put characteristics on somebody that they've never thought of in their life because we're comparing them to the worst of the situation. And it just creates confusion in the relationship and in the connections that we have with one another. And I love, what, again, what Jesus does. He's like, you're wrong. You're just wrong. Like, what you're doing is wrong. And I think we have the ability to, to do that as well in a calm way to say, you know, creating the kind of confusion that you're trying to create here is wrong. And what we should be looking at is, is the truth, the scriptures and the power of God. And what does he talk about the power of God here? I love that he brings this up here because the power of God is the power of transformation, right? It's believing that if I disagree with somebody, that the power of God can still connect our lives and still bring peace in our life. If I'm angry at my spouse over an issue that just keeps coming up, I believe in the power of God that our lives can both change in such a way that we'll stay connected and we'll work through this issue together. And this is what Jesus said. He brought clarity, pointed out what they were doing. You're creating confusion. I'm bringing clarity. And this is a huge part of kindness is bringing clarity into relationships and situations. And again, this is what Jesus did, right? He didn't get bogged down in this back and forth commenting like, okay, well, maybe the second husband was the better husband. And so we'll, maybe he'll be the one or the fourth husband was the richer husband. And so he'll be the one who is with her in eternity. Like, he didn't get bogged down. It's, it's like when, you know, on Facebook, somebody posts something that somebody disagrees with. And it's not the post that usually gets the craziness. It's, it's in the comments, right? One body will make a comment and then it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And you look like, I've seen some of these, whether it's political or all the different issues that are going on right now, and somebody will make a statement, and then there's 280 comments underneath it. I can't even look at it because I know all it is is this back and forth, confusion, 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 confusion. You're saying this, you're saying this, and there's no actual dialogue going on. It's just creating more confusion, and that's not what Jesus got bogged down in. Instead, he cleared out the distractions which is what is benevolent, something useful. He cleared out the distractions and then he brought clarity, which is the ease part of kindness. And that, and it says at the end of this, that they were astonished, astonished. And I think the true thing for us to grab here is if, if we bring clarity, if, if bringing clarity into conflict and confusion, if we're committed to doing that, we will be astonished at the end of the reconciliation that can happen of the hope and the healing that can happen, of even some of the agreement that can happen if we'll bring clarity instead of just debating back and forth and back and forth and just creating more confusion. So he brought calm, he brought clarity, and then he gets hit with a third question here. And this one is, we it's talked about in many different parts of scripture, but it's, it's in this context of Matthew 22 when they come up to him and he's like, oh, teacher of the law. And this is like the first string coming back then. This is the Pharisees coming back in. And they're like, all right, which is the greatest commandment? And why were they asking this? Because even within the Pharisees, even the Jewish leaders, there were like sects of people who were like, okay, let's, let's talk about how we 
handle our money as the number one thing, or let's talk about how we read the scriptures as the number one, or how often we go to the synagogue, or how, like again, how much we tithe, all of these things. They had created these sects based on different things that they thought were the most important. And so they, again, they they put them here and they're like, all right, Jesus, which one is the greatest commandment? And what they're asking them to do is to pick a side. Pick a side. You're either with us or against us, right? There's no in-between ground. And he was, they were trying to kind of pigeon-toe him into one of these sects and be like, okay, that's who you are. So now we know you and know how to attack you. We know how to deal with you because you are this. You're a Democrat. You're a Republican. You're from the North. You're from the South. You're white. You're black. You're Hispanic. We we put them in these categories and Jesus does something amazing here to show kindness. Instead of getting it lost in the minutia and instead of remembering the, the things that are different about us, the little things that separate it, he brought them back to the main thing, the one thing that is common no matter what sect they were in and something they couldn't argue with. And here's what he said, Matthew twenty two forty. He says that the two greatest commandments were love God and, and love other people. And he says, on these two commands depend all of the laws. <laughs> he like blurred the lines. He was like, your sect, guess what? You can't argue with it because this is stated back in the way Old Testament. Like this is a command that every Jewish person would agree on. Love God, love people. They were like, yeah, we know about those two, but which, what else is most important? And Jesus was like, no, I'm not going to get into that. You want to know what's really most important? Love God and love people. All these other man-made lines you've drawn, I'm going to blur those. And here's what he did here. So he brought calm, then he brought clarity, and I love in this moment, he finds a way to bring consensus to a group that were very divided, into a culture that was very divided. Jesus, instead of defining himself by the most uncommon things, how you do this, 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 and this. He defined himself by the things that were common to everyone. Love God, love people. And he was telling them, look, you're more worried about the distinctions and differences that we can, than what we all have in common. All other things, all other laws depend on this. And for us, it's this beautiful reminder of how he showed kindness. So that he reminded them what was most important. That's benevolence. He brought something useful to the conversation and to the situation. And then he brought consensus and agreement back. And that brought ease. That was a calm that came back. And again, for you and I, I think this shows up in our relationships and our connections with other people by reminding ourselves that there's always something we can push back and find agreement on. There's always something common about us versus what's different about us. And you would say, no, 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 I I can't find anything in common with a person who agrees with this person or who stands for this. And I would challenge you on that to be like, you haven't looked deep enough. You're looking at the sex, the different sections that we've created. And I want to encourage you to blur the lines a little bit, go back farther, dig deeper, find something that you have in common with a person and start from there. And that's going to be one of the ways we implement this later on. But that's exactly what Jesus did here. He he took them back farther and deeper than where they were defining themselves in that moment. And we as a culture, we as people, we as a country, we're we're not ultimately American. We're, we're, let's start it this way: we're we're not New Yorkers. First and ultimately, we're not you know from whatever state. We're not we're not Americans. 
first and foremost. We're not independent Republican Democrat. We don't vote for this candidate or that. When you take it all back, we're, we're human beings. We're all created in the image of God. We're hand-shaped vessels and images of God that he has placed on this earth and into each other's lives. That's our ultimate definition, not these other things where we have created the division. And I think sometimes we lack kindness because we sharpen the lines between each other instead of blurring the lines. So I love what happened at the end of this. It says at the end of this passage, after they had done this rapid fire through questions, is they didn't ask any more questions. It says they did not dare to ask any more questions. And I love that maybe they felt like they finally got, finally got outsmarted by Jesus and weren't ready to match wits with him. But I think this too brings us to when, when we have consensus in our lives and we blur the lines a little bit, we stop questioning each other's motives quite as much. We, we don't ask as many questions in a good way. Like, I'm not questioning everything you do. I'm not looking at every action and thinking you're out to get me or you're against me. Instead, I begin to believe the best about you. I begin to want the best for you and have hope for our relationship and what might move forward. So, how do we apply this? As last week, we talked about, you know, the contending with your heart. There's another word that I really want us to grab onto today in this application and it's learning to constrain our thoughts. As much as we need to show compassion, we need to contend with our hearts. To show kindness, we need to constrain our thoughts. It says in scripture, to take every thought captive. So when, when I read something on Facebook, when somebody says something and I have disagreement with my heart and I wanna draw those sharp lines, we have to constrain our thoughts and submit them to the kindness that we actually wanna show. And how do we do this? And the, the way I've done it in my life, and I think scripture teaches us to do it, is it says, one, be willing to change my mind first before I try to change somebody else's mind. Ask, where is it that I am lacking wisdom and knowledge? Where is it that I'm lacking perspective to fully understand why this person may think this way or act this way or, or did this action? And so I need to be willing to change my thoughts first, my mind first, before I try to change somebody else's mind. Most of us don't do that. Most of us, we get in a disagreement and we, we start in argument mode, right? Like, let me tell you where you're wrong and where you need to change your mind. It happens all the time in, in deep, intimate relationships and marriages and families and friends, not just in enemies. Like this, this is stuff that happens day to day in our homes. We've got to be willing to change our mind first. You know, where I think this is hardest is not maybe with your spouse, it's with your kids. As a parent, you go, no, 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 they need to listen to me. You know what? They have a different perspective than you. They, they're walking through life. Your kids are walking through life in a different way than you did. They're experiencing things at a different time in their life than you ever did. I remember when PJ was in sixth grade, we just seemed to be butting heads back and forth, back and forth. And it was, I was constantly telling you, you know, this is the way it is. This is what you got to do. You got to live up to these standards. And we got into a conversation and, uh, uh, I said, all right, tell me what you're thinking. And one of the things he brought up, he was like, Dad, when you correct me, you always use sarcasm. And he's like, I don't respond well to that, and I wish he wouldn't do that. And I'm telling you, my first thought was like, well, I don't care. That's just who I am. You better get used to it because that's I'm your dad. But God gave me wisdom and restraint and helped me constrain my thoughts 
in that moment and realize that's something I needed to change about me. I need to change the way I think and not use that as a tool with PGA or really with anybody. It really challenged me to to pull back on my sarcasm and how I treated people in relationships. So change your mind first. The second way you constrain your thoughts is to soften your heart first. When, when you feel that anger and that division coming up, let the, let the calmness come in. Soften it first. Allow your heart to bring calm and clarity and consensus. Be willing to want to take that step even when the other person isn't. And this is hard, right? We we often want somebody else to take the first step of softening their heart, of admitting they're wrong or dealing with the issue in their own life. We're truly the to be able to constrain your thoughts means that we're willing to soften our hearts first and be willing to say, all right, let me let me listen fully to you. Let me hear what you're saying and why you're saying it. And then let me think on that for a while. Let me take it in. I'm not going to respond. I'm going to allow it. And that's softening your heart. That means you have to change every opinion. It just means, soften means this. You're willing to receive it, right? To hold on to it, to let it come in, like you're catching it, like a like a pitcher throws it to you and you, you caught, catcher catches it, softens it, he catches it, and then he throws it back after he handles it. You know, it's, we, we take it in, soften your heart, let it, let your heart be willing to receive a different view, a different opinion, a different thought, a correction that you haven't seen before. So change your mind first, soften your heart first, and then finally find contentment in your soul first. And I'm not saying first compared to somebody else. I'm saying let the, it's hard to show kindness. It's hard to bring calm, clarity, and consensus into an environment to, to be benevolent and bring ease into a relationship to show that true kindness if you don't have contentment in your heart first. If you don't realize that you are first and foremost a child of God, forgiven and heir to the kingdom of heaven. If you don't realize, and this is what Paul talked about in Colossians 1, finding that identity in Christ, your contentment in Christ. If you haven't dealt with that issue yet, kindness isn't going to flow. We need to have contentment in our heart. Not with our, not with the things, not that we can't grow, not that we can't mature, continue to, to keep moving forward. But the idea that I'm not defined by whether I win this argument or not. My, my heart and my mind and my soul are not defined by whether I win and this person loses. We find contentment in who we are in Christ, not whether we win an argument. So that's how we apply this in our life. We, we have to constrain our thoughts. When it comes in, change your, be willing to change your mind. For a you know what? I don't have all wisdom. I don't have all understanding. Let, let me see if there's something I can learn. Soften your heart. Be willing to at least receive things in, a different perspective, a different point of view, walk in, you know, when, when conflict comes, be willing to receive it. I mean, you have to take it all in, but just be willing to receive it. But realize that even in receiving it, your contentment is not coming whether you win or lose, or you agree with this argument or not, the contentment, the, the peace comes, the kindness comes when we have contentment in who we are in Christ. So how do we implement this? Let me just give you a a few things. Last week we talked about how to implement compassion was to wear your heart on your sleeve, right? To to let your the feelings of showing mercy be as close to your hand as possible so you're ready to act. This week I want to challenge you with another saying that we've heard before. And the way we implement this is to walk softly 
and carry a big stick. Now, we that's often that was used by Teddy Roosevelt to talk about like his defense strategy, but I want to talk to you about it as your kindness strategy because that big stick is not to hit somebody with. It's not to attack somebody with. That big stick is that benevolence and that ease that you bring into somebody. Be ready to act. Walk softly. You don't have to come in prideful, arrogant. You don't come in harsh. What you come in easy. You walk into a conversation and try to bring ease into it. You walk into a difficult relationship or situation and you bring ease. You walk softly into it. You don't bring more trouble than is already there. But be ready to act with big kindness, with big compassion that we talked about last week. Not to not to hurt each other, each other, but to help one another. And here's some ways I've found to do this in my life. And one is this, start having conversations instead of arguments. Too often, all we do is argue. And argue is, is debate, right? It's here, you listen to me, I listen to you, and we all know what's happening. When, when I'm arguing with somebody, if they're saying something to me, I'm not really listening to them. I'm thinking more about what I'm gonna say next. I don't take it in. And so conversations, though, are give and take. You you speak, I consider, I bring it in, change, be willing to change my mind, soften my heart, realize I don't, even if I, you know, allow something to change my thoughts, my contentment is in Christ, not in win or loss here. And then I respond. I say, well, I'm feeling a certain way. Second way that we implement this to, to walk softly and carry a big stick is to wait for open doors instead of trying to push past barriers. I know in my life, whether it's raising kids or growing a relationship with, with Katie, or even in friendships, like there, there are distinct things that I've, maybe it's issues that I've grown and dealt with in the past and I see them and I was like, oh, I wish you could grow as quickly, or maybe not as quickly, just go ahead and grow the way I have. or. I see issues in somebody like that I have disagreement with and I, I want them to go ahead and come in agreement with me so maybe we can push forward in a relationship. And sometimes I just push past barriers as quick as I, and I expect things of people before they're ready to, to deal with things. And what this does is we, we wait for doors to open, wait for an invitation sometime to speak about a topic versus just barging into somebody's life and saying, we got to deal with this, or this is where you and I are different and we can't be friends or we can't move past this point until we deal with this. Be willing to walk with, so that's the walking softly part of this. Walk softly, carry that big stick. Be ready to have the difficult conversations, the challenging conversations, but in a way we're having conversations, not arguments, but wait for the right doors to open. And then this plays into the third way that we implement this in our life to me, which is follow the promptings of the Spirit of God instead of our own feelings. And I know for me, this is a hard one, right? I mean, my, my feelings can boil to the top very, very quickly. Things I want to say, the way I want to react, the things I want to say about other people, the distinctions I want to make, the sharper lines that I want to draw to make these distinctions and divisions. And instead of letting my own feelings guide that response, kindness, implementing kindness in our life is following the prompting of the Spirit to say, oh, you know, maybe let's not respond that way. Let's bring calmness back into it. Or here's some clarity that you can bring into the situation. And then finally, the, the fourth way that I try to implement this in my life is to share wisdom instead of just spreading my own opinion. 
just because I have one thought and somebody else has another thought, one opinion about a person or a situation or how we should react to a situation, doesn't mean that, that my way is ultimate wisdom or ultimately right. We can have differences of opinion and it doesn't mean one person's good and one person's bad and one person's great and one person's evil. It just means that we're different in that point. We're coming at it from different perspectives. And what joins perspectives together, what brings calm and clarity and consensus is wisdom, not opinion. And true wisdom only comes from God. And so these, to me, four steps of having a conversation instead of an argument, waiting for open doors instead of barging through barriers, following the prompting of God, the spirit instead of your own feelings and sharing wisdom instead of your own opinions is how kindness begins to play out in our life. It's following the model of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He didn't get into a debate. He didn't bust down their door in the middle of the night and say, hey, I finally thought of a better response and post it. He followed God's spirit in his life. He is the, the spirit of God in person on this earth and what he shared was wisdom, was truth, not just opinion. So I want to challenge you to be kind this week, not just to do kind things, but to put that definition into practice. That be useful, bring something useful and meaningful into a situation that brings ease and comfort to people in their physical nature, emotional and relational situations. Be a kind person, more so than just showing kindness. And walk through this week softly, but carrying a big stick, ready to show kindness in a useful and meaningful way.